Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale, the law firm where real estate really matters. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you very much indeed for attending our webinar. This is the third Maples Teasdale Annual Strategic Land Seminar, but it's the first and I very, very much hope the only to be held entirely uh, on the web. I'd like to welcome our panelists. We are delighted to welcome Tom Fraser from Savills in Cambridge. Tom is a director in their development services team specializing in residential land with a particular focus on strategic land projects. Tom predominantly advises landowners from cradle to grave on promotion, option, and hybrid projects. Uh, Tom will be giving us a very valuable insight into the current strategic land market, assuming there is one. We're also joined this afternoon by Tom Wybrow from KPMG. Tom is a director in their private client team uh, and has over 15 years experience in advising entrepreneurs and high net worth individuals on a broad range of matters, including business acquisition and disposal and property transactions. Tom has a, a particular project that he and others at KPMG are working on at the moment uh, around land pooling, a complexity that many of you will have wrestled with in projects of your own, I'm sure. Uh, Tom will be introducing you to a new structure that KPMG have come up with, which might just simplify that aspect of large multi-owner projects. Two of my Maples Teasdale colleagues will also be speaking this afternoon. John Bosworth heads our planning team. John has extensive experience in both private and public sectors, advising landowners, local authorities, developers, investors, and regeneration agencies, amongst others, on a wide range of development projects. John will be reviewing recent planning law changes and their impact on strategic land projects. But we'll start the afternoon with my colleague, Claire Civil. Claire is a senior associate in our strategic land team and is highly experienced in all aspects of non-contentious property work, advising landowners, developers, landlords, tenants, and investors on a range of projects. Claire will be talking to you this afternoon on what we at Maples are seeing as the current themes in strategic land legal documentation. Claire, over to you. Great, thank you. Thank you very much, Martin, and good afternoon, everyone. As Martin said, I'm Claire Civil, Senior Associate in the Maples Teasdale Real Estate Team. Uh, and before we start the, the general discussion, I just want to introduce a few of the themes and trends that we're seeing from the legal perspective. So first of all, starting with hybrid agreements, we're seeing that these are becoming increasingly popular in the market, whereas historically landowners might have maybe granted an option to a developer, which could be exercised during a specific period of time, usually after planning permissions been obtained, or alternatively, perhaps they could enter into a promotion agreement where both landowner and promoter work together to actively promote a site for development, appointing all the consultants and lodging the planning application. We're now tending to see an amalgamation of the two. These hybrid agreements are seen by an increasing number of housing developers as the best of both worlds. The hybrid is based on the standard promo but includes an option for the developer to purchase a certain proportion of the land when and if planning permission is obtained. Uh, hybrids are most common on larger sites where a developer is willing to build out a certain number of houses on its option area, but will also agree to promote the wider site for sale to third parties with the benefit of planning permission. We usually see transactions where the option land element is the minority proportion, 
but we do occasionally see up to a 50-50 split. Um, a complicating factor for hybrid agreements is the calculation of market value. Obviously, the developer will want to exercise its option element for the lower, lowest price it possibly can, juxtaposed to the party's intent to maximize value across the remainder of the site. So hybrid agreements we see can therefore contain some very complicated market value calculations for the option land. And we sometimes see overage and clawback adjustments to correct any perceived undervalue further down the line. Secondly, a common theme which emerged, especially in the run up to the election in December last year, was the risk of CPOs for development land. In part, we figured that this was fueled by the Labour election manifesto, but the issue hasn't entirely gone away. And it's sensible to assume that Homes England is likely to continue to adopt an interventionist strategy in the delivery of housing in order to meet government housing targets. Certainly, Homes England's approach has been to look to acquire mothballed or challenging sites to unlock them for development. And on larger multi-owner schemes, we're often seeing uh, cautionary drafting to deal with the risk of valuable land being requisitioned by the government under a CPO. Um, turning next to tax concerns, um, especially in the current climate, it's likely that the government is going to start to look at new ways to bring money into the Treasury. Uh, so will there be an introduction of a new development tax, maybe, or perhaps an increase in capital gains taxes? Um, the majority of legal agreements that we've been seeing over the last few months all include tax freezer clauses. So essentially, this means that if a new tax regime is introduced, which is excessively high, then the land disposal process can be postponed, potentially up to a number of years until government tax policy has had a chance to reset itself. Uh, and I think we're going to be looking at tax considerations a bit later on in this webinar. Um, another important and developing trend that we've been seeing over the last 12 to 18 months or so has been to allow promoters and developers the right to terminate agreements early if it becomes clear that planning may not be granted for all or part of the land in question. Um, on the flip side, we're also seeing landowners wanting to include similar protection, allowing them to withdraw from development and planning agreements if it's clear that the land that they own is unlikely to ex secure acceptable planning. And finally, uh, we can't fail to mention what impact recent events are going to have on future transactions in our sector. Um, there's an obvious and increased focus around force majeure events, and we anticipate that we'll continue to see more emphasis on this going forward. Uh, we consider that it's likely to become industry standard to include drafting for automatic delays and the extension of planning timelines, where the market is significantly disrupted in the way that we've been seeing over the last few weeks and months. Um, so that, that's it as a nutshell on the legal side, uh, but I'd now like to hand over to Tom Wybrow from KPMG, uh, who's going to talk to us a bit more about the tax structuring. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Tom Wybrow. I'm a director in the private client team at KPMG. I advise entrepreneurs on their tax issues. More recently, I've been num uh, advising a number of landowners as they go through the planning process. One thing we're seeing at the moment is the direction of travel for local authorities is to look for larger site, which has resulted in an increase in the number of multi-owner sites going through the planning process. Where you have a multi-owner site, you're going to need some sort of equalisation agreement between the landowners. There are a number of ways to do this. 
and we've seen a variety of structures involving companies cross options but probably the most common we see in the marketplace is a land pool and trust all of these options present four key tax risks the first is the proceeds could be subject to income tax rather than capital gains tax potentially there could be a double tax charge on equalization payments in that the selling landowner does not receive a deduction in their capital gains tax calculation for payments made to other landowners yet the other landowners are still taxed on these and then three and four relate to enhancement costs around that land so you may see a restriction in the allowable enhancement costs or potentially you could see a disparity in the timing between when those costs are incurred and when you get a deduction for capital gains tax purposes this could lead to a scenario where you end up selling land but because payments need to be made to other uh, parties perhaps the promoter to refund infrastructure costs you could end up with a tax charge but the owners having no tax to pay it in addition when we look at a land pooling trust we have valuation issues to consider that can often be expensive to administer and perhaps more importantly and the most pushback we see on cases we've been acting on our landowners don't like them because they're required to give up the legal title to their land we were approached by a group of landowners a couple of years ago where commercially they couldn't get comfortable with a land pooling trust and they asked us to have a look to see if there was another way of structuring this from a tax perspective we work with the landowners to structure the equalization such that we don't need to create a new structure but instead the equalization is achieved through the legal relationship between the landowners as a result of the promotion and collaboration agreements they're entering into now the legal drafting is very important and quite critical to the tax analysis so it's very important that we work closely with martin and his team on this part of it it's important also to say that each case is fact specific but on a number of cases now we have agreed our analysis the tax analysis sorry with hmrc through the non-statutory clearance process and broadly the analysis we've been able to agree is as follows the landowners will be subject to capital gains tax rather than income tax the landowners will only be subject to what they are legally entitled to receive under the agreements such that if under the agreements the landowner selling the land is not legally entitled to equalization payments made to other landowners they won't be subject to capital gains tax on those amounts in addition if legally they're not entitled to payments which are due to the promoter or any other entity to refund infrastructure costs again these payments won't come into the capital gains tax calculation of the selling landowner we consider that this method manages to mitigate the four key tax issues that I outlined at the beginning. As importantly, this doesn't involve any new structures and the landowners are able to use their land as is until the point of sale in order to, uh, until the point of sale. We've also got the ability to obtain clearance from HMRC prior to uh, getting those final agreements signed so the landowners have certainty on their own position clearly 
Each case does depend and will need to be considered on its particular facts. But where we have a multi-owner site, particularly if we think that the land will be sold in tranches, in the absence of the landowners already having a preferred method for dealing with the tax structuring, this is our preferred way to take things forward. Tom, thank you very much. And I, I think you know a number of really interesting points in what you said. We, uh, I think many, many people in the room will uh, have wrestled with the Jenkins v. Brown structure and all of the unwelcome complexity that it brings. And you mentioned in particular the the, the aversion that landowners have to to that change of legal ownership at such an early stage in the overall process. And it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing in in real practical terms, but it's also a huge thing in uh, uh, psychologically for for landowners often who have owned land for generations. And um, I must say we're we're really excited about this. It's uh, we're we're working on two or three projects at the moment, and um, that's both in terms of engineering new projects to, to to work with this structure, but also reverse engineering existing established collaborations to fit into the structure. And the the beauty of what KPMG are doing here is that it it allows for both uh, both alternatives. Tom, many thanks. John Bosworth, my head of planning, is going to talk to us about the raft of planning changes that we've seen in these exciting times and maybe perhaps speculating about what else might be coming down the line. John, over to you. Thanks, Martin. Um, yes, well, I, what I thought I'd do as we're six months into this government um, would be to carry out a sort of half-year review of the Secretary of State's performance, particularly on planning issues and um, mainly uh, with, a, with an eye on strategic land issues because of the seminar we're doing today. Um, so it's a sort of half-term report in a way, um, the, the good, the bad and the ugly. So I'm, I'm kicking off with the good, um, which I think uh, this, this document, uh, Planning for the Future, which uh, the, the Ministry published in, in March, um, it's mainly uh, paving the way for a, a planning white paper, uh, which was due to be published in the spring, I think we're officially past the spring now, but uh, I dare say the government's got uh, some good uh, good excuses for missing this particular deadline. But uh, we are going to be seeing a, a planning white paper at some point, and this document gives some hints. Um, uh, some have a familiar tone to them. They want to speed up the planning system. Uh, I've never actually heard of a government that wanted to slow down the planning system, but most seem to manage to achieve that. Um, they're talking about using more technology to improve. Uh, the way the planning system works. They don't give any clues as to what that means, but that could be interesting, um, and I, I look forward to that. Um, they're going to give a, a deadline to all local authorities to produce their local plans by December 2023. Uh, so presumably we'll be seeing some intervention if uh, authorities don't have up-to-date local plans by then. Um, they want to look at measures to encourage planning permissions to be built out. Um, they're looking, interestingly, at the use of more simplified measures such as uh, zoning tools. And um, as, just to echo one of the points Claire made, uh, they are still, even this government, talking about greater use of CPO powers uh, to unlock developments and see them uh, proceed. So uh, that's something to look forward to. Um, the, another good, uh, good point, the COVID SIL changes. Uh, recognising at the moment that um, that uh, SIL payments are pretty inflexible. If you want to commence development, 
um, you've got to basically pay them in accordance with uh, any an agreed uh, schedule or all up front. Um, but for small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, they're providing some flexibility um, to defer payments uh, until later in the development stage uh, to waive any interest payments. Uh, for larger developers, there's no such um, uh, regulations coming in force, um, but authorities are uh, encouraged to behave, uh, to use their discretions a bit more and uh, be more flexible. Uh, but no waiver of interest for delayed SIL payments if they choose to. Uh, on Section 106 agreements, um, the, uh, the post-COVID uh, advice encourages authorities to be pragmatic and proportionate in terms of uh, enforcing Section 106 agreements. Um, so in particular, where there are upfront payments, pre-commencement uh, payments, uh, authorities are encouraged to, again, Think about deferring them. Uh, there have been a couple of ministerial planning appeals um, on the green belt where again some interesting uh, outcomes. Um, in Stockport uh, an appeal, these are both in March um, and uh, say the Secretary of State decided them. In Stockport uh, the council just had a 2.8 year housing land supply as opposed to a uh, required five-year one and that in itself was found to be very special circumstances uh, allowing normal green belt presumptions to be overridden uh, and planning permission granted for a, a large residential development. Um, uh, in Oxfordshire, South Oxfordshire, uh, there uh, again also in March, uh, the council had a full five-year housing land supply but a very out-of-date local plan and there was an acute need for affordable housing. Again these these three factors or two factors and the removal of a, an unsightly building were all held to be very special circumstances, which again, uh, overrode the green belt. Um, um, perhaps the, the best thing we've seen in the light of the, the current epidemic um, is the announcement yesterday, um, so this is hot off the press, uh, that the government is due to follow uh, the Scottish government and extend the lifetime of planning permissions that uh, would otherwise have expired uh, during the currency of the uh, epidemic if they hadn't been commenced. So this means if you've got a permission, uh, there is to be legislation on this, but uh, what we're told is uh, if you have a permission which was due to expire between the 23rd of March and the 31st of December, then that permission will automatically be extended till the uh, 1st of April next year. So you have uh, an extra time to, to start to, to commence that development. Uh, they reckon that there were some 400 uh, residential permissions which would, uh, which would have expired by the end of this month um, without implementation uh, because of the, uh, the circumstances. It's slightly anomalous because um, you're obviously better off in a way having a permission which expires before the 31st of December than afterwards because if it's before 31st of December it gets extended till the 1st of, of uh, April. Uh, if you're the 1st of January, bad luck. So uh, I'd say better off if you've got a permission expiring this year. Uh, less good, so that's a, uh, bad. Um, I'm not sure why there isn't the same SIL flexibility for larger scale developers uh, than there is for small ones. So, say, no regulations there for them to uh, uh, allow uh, for authorities to defer or to uh, uh, to not seek uh, interest on, on late payments. And um, and I think sort of rendering slightly toothless the policy announcement on um, uh, on Section 106 agreements. 
and their ability to apply to have your Section 106 agreement amended or modified uh, to again allow the deferral of payments. So I think uh, to give teeth to the, the policy, there ought to be some regulations allowing you to actually uh, apply to have the change uh, made. Uh, otherwise, you're, uh, you're, you're left sort of basically asking the uh, a local authority to follow policy but with no, no sanction. Um, and then the ugly, for poor Mr. Jenrick, uh, uh, um, we've got a, a Labour Opposition Day debate tomorrow on his handling of the uh, West Ferry Printers decision. Um, and it just, uh, worth just uh, as it'll be in the headlines tomorrow or the day after, I'll just mention it quickly. Um, a 1500 home scheme uh, on the Isle of Dogs, uh, promoted by the former press baron uh, Richard Desmond, uh, who also happened to be a Conservative Party donor. Uh, his scheme had been refused by the council, uh, re uh, jurisdiction had been recovered on appeal. Um, the inspector recommends refusal, uh, but uh, the day before town hamlets were due to increase their sill rates, the Secretary of State decides to grant planning permission, uh, saving Mr Desmond a healthy £40 million. Pounds. Um, also 21% affordable housing rather than theirs, a minimum 35. So town hamlets judicially reviewed it, um, as did the GLA, and uh, after a very short while, the Secretary of State submits to judgment um, on the grounds of his apparent bias uh, in reaching the decision, and uh, in particular making it the day before Tower Hamlets uh, actually uh, adopted their, their new sill rates. So it's only apparent bias. Uh, the Secretary of State is continuing to say that there was no actual bias, uh, but only that uh, perhaps a fair-minded observer might have thought there'd be some bias. But uh, I think we're looking to see uh, actually what, um, what's revealed in the paperwork and uh, quite uh, how this bias came about. So um, that story is going to carry on running. Uh, the submitting to judgment does mean the planning commission's quashed. Um, so whatever happens, it'll be redetermined in the post-increased uh, sill world. So uh, a bit of an aside from strategic land, but uh, uh, an interesting story. Um, and then lastly, we, we wait for the planning white paper um, and that should be in the next few weeks. And I'm not gonna say whether that's gonna be uh, good, bad or ugly, uh, but uh, we have got uh, Dominic Cummings uh, in the papers yesterday and today, threatening to bring an ax to the planning system um, and uh, calling it uh, an appalling system. Um, so I suspect Mr Cummings might have a little bit of influence on what the, uh, the white paper has to say. So I'll uh, pass you, finish there for the minutes and uh, pass you over to Tom. Thank you very much, Martin, and thank you to the team for asking uh, me to join the webinar today. Um, my name is Tom Fraser. I sit in the development team in Cambridge and I am a director specialising in mainly strategic land. So um, I thought it'd be useful to split my five minute allocation between immediate land, i.e. with planning permission in strategic land. Now, without wishing to sound like a politician, clearly the events over the last three months or so have been unprecedented. House builders have had to adapt very quickly to the impact of COVID, with many of the larger PLCs immediately furlough furloughing staff to mitigate their cost exposure. However, we did see some smaller regional house builders, particularly in the East, continuing to operate, albeit taking the necessary health and safety precautions, as many still have plots to complete following exchanges earlier in the year. 
This did, as a result, largely stop all land sales in the marketplace. Only sales that had exchanged, and certainly none that we've been involved with, continued, whilst house builders desperately responded to conserve cash, given the immediate shutdown of building sites. Interestingly, post-lockdown, we have seen some house builders trying to progress, progress land sales and introducing something called a COVID clause to sale contracts. In this instance, this effectively allows a house builder, at their absolute discretion, the ability to terminate the contract if, inverted commas, market conditions worsen following exchange. Whilst this is something to consider, this mechanism effectively turns an unconditional contract, albeit with a delayed completion, into an option, so not terribly attractive. Most of the house builders have since largely restarted, but construction will be much slower and variably as I said, due to the health and safety restrictions, this will slow the delivery of units, but equally act as a tool to protect the margin, which I'm sure the house builders will look positively on and maintain sale prices. We have seen some green shoots. Recently, it's been reported that reservations are improving across the board, but there is a question mark as to whether this is simply just a sign of the pent up demand in the marketplace or the market coming back to life. However, Looking further back, we have clearly been through a period of sustained uncertainty with the B word, but following the successful vote passing through the Commons earlier in the year, we did see a short rally on new home inquiries, but this stopped immediately once COVID arrived. House builders are invariably driven by consumer sentiment and their appetite to buy land is linked to the ability to successfully build and sell houses, something which has been pretty variable over the last 24 months. Looking further forward, the furlough scheme tapers off in September, October, and I think this is the point that we will really see the true effect of COVID and the impact from an economic point of view. Unfortunately, it'll be a point in time where businesses have to make some difficult decisions about how they will operate in the future and, if necessary, make redundancies. I think it's inevitable that we will see some form of intervention from government, either in the form of a stamp duty holiday or in the extension of the Help to Buy programme, which is due to be restricted down to first-time purchases in April 21. I could see a slogan of Get Britain Building Again and a five-year commitment to a similar financial initiative. After all, the construction industry, in my view, is a critical part of the economy recovery. Sorry, the economic recovery. Turning now to strategic land, this has been an increasingly congested market marketplace over the last two to three years with a number of new entrants ranging in scale and size. This part of the market has been less affected by COVID and personally I've been involved with a number of large-scale promotion agreements with Maples that we've exchanged during the COVID period ranging from 500 units to three to five thousand units. Invariably on larger strategic sites it could take many years to go through the plan period and even see one or two economic cycles before all the land sales have occurred or the scheme has been built out. However, whilst there is quite a bit of activity in this sector, we have seen we have seen recently premiums starting to reduce, along with promoters and house builders percentages coming down as well to mitigate cost exposure and improve returns. That said, the longer this goes on, COVID, COVID will start stress testing business models particularly of land promoters due to the absence of the uh, due to the absence and delay on land sales 
a crucial cash recovery process for those businesses. This can be mitigated to a certain extent with um, delaying uh, expenditure, but after that, they are under quite carefully drafted legal obligations, so their hands are tied to a certain extent. Looking to the future, one area which needs to be closely taxed, uh, sorry, um, closely um, watched is of course tax. The big unknown, and one for, of course, Tom at KPMG, but we do wonder how the money spent on all the various COVID initiatives, such as the furlough scheme, which costs £14 billion a month, will be recouped. Last week, a leaked Treasury document showed the government is already considering breaking election manifesto pledges not to raise income tax, national insurance or VAT, and could even scrap the triple lock on state pension. Could they even go after CGT, or will we see some form of bespoke development land tax? Time will tell. And finally, as Claire mentioned right at the beginning, we believe that CPO could be a tool used increasingly by the likes of Homes England to bring forward larger development sites which have um, stalled throughout the years. So, thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you to all the panellists. Just picking up on something you mentioned right at the end there, Tom, they, they sort of the CPO, it's, it's, it's the old Roosevelt saying, isn't it? Speak softly and carry a big stick. Homes England, of course, and the regional development agencies before it always had CPO powers, but they were very, very rarely used. But certainly, I think in, in more recent instances, the, the possibility of that route has perhaps become a little, bo a little bit more um, apparent in the way that Homes England conducts itself. Yeah. And uh, I think, uh, although it was not used in the Burgess Hill transaction, I think there was always the unspoken understanding that if it, if it were needed, it would be. We're involved in something at the moment where uh, Homes England are facilitating infrastructure delivery, and that is being secured with the various landowners involved with a collaboration agreement. Um, yeah. But Homes England are also instructing the relevant local authority, it's HIF funding, to draw up a CPO strategy, very much as a as a plan B, so that should should any party uh, start to sort of you know stray from the party line, that there will be an immediate response to ensure, well, as immediate as CPO can be, of course, to ensure that um, the, the the bigger picture and housing delivery is not frustrated. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that is likely to become a, an increasing feature of the landscape. I, th I, th I think certainly you can see circumstances on large multi-ownership sites where either key pieces of infrastructure have to be delivered or you've got landowners who are not willing to participate or there's just some blockage. And as you say, Homes England um, have the ability to do it. Um, it, is, it is their sort of weapon of last resort. And they also have the ability to grant themselves planning permission. Um, but these things tend to work themselves out. But I, I think it's something, as I said, particularly on, on, on the larger constrained sites, which will be, which will certainly be focused on. Yeah. Um, Tom Wybrow, Tom mentioned there, um, obviously there's a, it's going to be a budget sometime in the autumn. The last budget was the 11th of March. If we sort of pause to reflect on how the world has changed since then, how dramatically the world has changed, um, there's been an awful lot of chatter in the in the press about uh, possible uh, alleviation methods, and I think we all know that the the major house builders are uh, have certainly had very high level discussions with with Treasury. D 
do, do you have any views on what might be coming down the line to to assist the housing market from a from a sort of tax and um, associated uh, relief measures? So, well, look, obviously, it's it's a very difficult question because none of us sit here with a crystal ball. Uh, the the chancellor's also got a very difficult balancing act at the moment. Um, on one hand, looking to restart the economy. On the other hand, looking to raise revenues as Obviously, we've taken on a substantial amount of national national debt um, in in recent times as well. I think focusing specifically on the sort of property market or things we might see in this sector. I mean, the two key things that have been speculated about would be some sort of SDLT reduction or SDLT holiday, which I know has been in the press and a lot of people have commented on. And, and the other thing thinking slightly more broadly would be a, a reduction in the rate of VAT, um, which will have on have knock on effects, particularly on things like promotion agreements and infrastructure costs potentially as we as we look at various things. So those are probably the two key areas where there's been the most speculation. Um, but you're right, it will be very interesting um, when the Chancellor stands up next as he tries to um, walk that very tight tightrope and balance balance the um restarting the economy and and raising revenue at the same time so um yeah very interesting yeah it, it it really is and i think one of the one of the other sort of defining things that has come out of this whole period is just the the extraordinary delay that this this uh covid response has introduced and john alluded to it and so did claire you know the introduction of, of covid provisions into legal documentation addressing a situation that really we've never seen before and, and, and never never really had to be contemplated before the idea of the entire country effectively coming to an economic halt for a sustained number of months it's an extraordinary position to find ourselves in tom fraser uh, there's been stuff in the press recently about the um slightly concerning uh, tightening up of the mortgage market with the five and the ten percent mortgage deals all but disappearing do you have a view on that? Is that just, do you think, an immediate sort of knee-jerk reaction that will resolve itself um, over over time? Or might that be the market fighting itself for, for the next foreseeable future? No, I, I, think, I think in the short term it is a knee-jerk reaction. After all, interest rates have been very low for many years, and I'm sure they will be going to be saying very low for many years because we'll want to um, make sure that um, we, we don't want to stifle growth or anything like that. Equally, um, some, of the, some of the parties and some of the new purchasers who, will be, who would be ideally buying those new houses and um, wanting to get on the ladder will want exactly to use those products um, which aren't there at the moment. I, I, think, I think it was a knee-jerk reaction initially to pull those products from the market because of the risk and the concern about um, house prices and the ability for purchases to quickly get into a sticky situation of negative equity. Um, however, saying that, and whilst I mentioned earlier, it's being cautious, most house builders have, have been reporting okay sales and we haven't seen so far, in, in, certainly in the, the area I'm involved with, that much of a reduction in prices. I think they'll be back. I think they'll be back just once we've seen some trading, because that's the other thing. 
be it land or be it house um, completions, there is very little market evidence at the moment, um, which you can put your hat on in terms of where everything is. It's difficult. Yeah, I think that, 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 that's a good point. That's a good point. And, and it's a little frustrating, isn't it? Just, just as we're beginning to come out of this, we will go into the summer months and, and we must expect the, the usual sort of summer lag that, that comes from that. So it's really going to be September and October that we're all going to be looking to for that, for that market data and that reassurance that what we're seeing at the moment isn't just that, that pent-up demand blip. Yeah, it, it's, it's going to be tough. It will be tough. I'd like to thank uh, our four panellists, Tom Wybro, KPMG, Tom Fraser from Savills, uh, and my colleagues, uh, John Bosworth and Claire Civil, for really very, very interesting takes on, on their particular areas within the, the overall strategic land market. What I take away from that is a broad optimism, I think, for the future. Uh, and, and that, I think, reflects generally how the property market, with the possible exception of retail, of course, is talking at the moment. Uh, but also with the recognition that life will not be the same, that, that some of the uh, ways in which business is transacted and definitely the way in which the public sector is going to put itself about in this period of recovery uh, are going to be potentially very dramatically different. And we, we will all have to become accustomed to those new uh, challenges and, and risks with CPO, I think, and the threat of CPO perhaps being uh, very much at the forefront of that. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank all the attendees uh, for joining us this afternoon. I very much hope that you will join us early in 2021, and I hope that that will be a physical seminar back in our offices in central London. Thank you very much all. Goodbye. Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale, the law firm where real estate really matters.